can't hear what these suckers say. I'm out here doing everything you suckers can't. To a million from some bands trying to bust the bank. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Break Some Dishes. So Break Some Dishes takes a closer look at some of the environmental crises we face as a global community under the lens of creativity and design. We talk to outliers who have worked to upend the status quo and find solutions. Bad design is bad for the planet. We need to design our way out of our climate crisis. I'm an artist and a designer, and John is a talker, and together we find those unique people who have found amazing ways to make a difference in saving our planet. All right, John. Yeah, I just read that off of our website. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Because it sounded so spontaneous. (laughs) But we haven't done a little preamble in a long time, and I didn't want our our listeners... Yeah, I didn't want our listeners to forget what we're here for and why we put in all this extra work after our day job. What we stand for, damn it. This podcast is important to the two of us. And this episode in particular, I find really timely in light of the IPCC report that just came out a couple of weeks ago. Grim news, climate change is human caused. But this speaker has such a fresh perspective on how individuals can take action, how corporations can take action and how government can. And it's, it, I just could not stop listening. I did not want to get off the air, which is funny, John, because I always question your choice and guess. And this one, <laughs> I was like, what is up? This guy works at a ski resort in Aspen. What could he possibly tell us about climate change and yeah. the crises that we're facing? Well, first of all, who doesn't want to work at a ski resort in Aspen? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so that's it's that is not a bad environment in which to be an environmental activist. That's for sure. I've known Auden for quite a while. I read his book uh, many many years ago called Getting Green Done, and it really inspired me to roll up my sleeves. I thought the time was really right for us to engage Auden in a little breaking of some dishes because Auden is an unusual climate activist in the sense that, you know, he's the senior vice president of sustainability for Aspen Ski Company. And what Auden does is he manages climate activism in this corporate environment. So, you know, you and I have talked to activists who are entrepreneurs. We've talked to activists who are inventors, who are scientists, who are chemical engineers, right? And I think it's unusual to get the perspective of an environmentalist who is trying to drive change throughout a fairly structurally rigid corporation. And Auden has written a lot about corporate responsibility in in the world of environmental activism. And so he has an amazing perspective. And I, I don't want to say that he's he's cynical. He's it's not that he's cynical, but I mean he's he's on the front lines, you know. And like one of the articles that he wrote was titled Climate Change, Too Many Visionaries, Too Few Grunts. So yeah. you know he what makes Auden really unique is he calls it like it is. He's a very open, honest. He's not going to sugarcoat anything. And he's a realist. You said he's a realist, Verda. And like with the IPCC report you just referenced, you can't deny it any longer that we've created a really dire situation and you can't wait for somebody else to, to fix it. We're past that point. 
No. And Auden puts out some, some great insight. Yeah. So we're excited to have him and Auden, Mr. Auden Schendler. Welcome, welcome, Auden Schendler, um, activist extraordinaire, author, evangelist, Renaissance man, outdoorsman, author, father, husband, man of many labels. <laughs> welcome to Break Some Dishes. Tell us a little bit about uh, what you're doing right now. You're with Aspen Skiing Company, and you have been for 20-some-odd years. Uh, so you've had quite the, uh, uh, quite the tenure with Aspen Skiing Company, and I'm sure that your uh, career has evolved a lot since the first day you started there. In fact, let me just start by saying you and I have known each other for quite a while. Um, I reached out to you back in my human scale days to, to share with us a little bit of your perspective um, right after you wrote your first book, Getting Green Done, right? Yeah, um, you know, and, and that's a good entree. So I like that you say my first book. That's like my first wife, my only book. Uh, but um, but yeah, you know, when you invited me to to give those presentations, I was I was sort of describing my entree into the field of corporate sustainability. Here at Aspen, you know, there, there are now hundreds of positions like mine. I'm the senior vice president of sustainability in a business. And historically, that job has been to reduce the impact of the company. Um, and in our case, it's also because of how we've evolved, how you how you use the business for good in society. And that's going to be the, the kind of bulk of what I care about and what we, I think, talk about here. But, but when I started, and the stories that I told during those human scale talks were sort of the question of how, how are we supposed to make a difference at scale? And what, what is our role as a business? And the conventional wisdom 30 years ago with sustainable business was that, that business is the only entity that is nimble enough, wealthy enough, powerful enough, autocratic enough, frankly, because you, you have a hierarchical system, not a, it's not a democracy, and motivated by profit to address major global sustainability issues, in particular climate change. So the thesis of corporate sustainability initially was business is going to be motivated to reduce its emissions and as a result will become a, a substantial part of the climate fix. Um, I, I will tell you a story here of, of why I realized that's not going to happen. But the short story is that business, business can only cut its emissions a certain amount. And it would be amazing if a corporation cut its emissions 30%. Like, that's insane. And yet, the Paris targets are 100% reductions. Um, corporations as a whole are widely not doing this. Many of them are growing, um, not reducing emissions. So so that's that's been sort of the journey. And, and where I arrived was corporate sustainability job has got to be to, to find the power and leverage within business to drive big enough scale change that it matters. So at the policy level. We're really interested to hear from you today because I, I have this thing called the holy 
trilogy of activism. And you have to engage community, corporate America, and federal regulation to actually create change. And what's interesting about your experience is in the commercial side of things, we're finding out that that's a lot more difficult than we thought, right? I, I just want to, I'm dying to talk about this with you. So this may be out of sequence, but it kind of, it blow my mind might be too dramatic, but it really, really uh, blew my mind when I was reading that you wrote that way back when we had that commercial on TV about littering, where you had the, um, the actor portraying um, a Native American looking at litter on the highway with a tear rolling down his cheek. And many of us looked at that commercial and said, wow, that was really cool. That was, that was like our first, that was the first really, I felt like we were being held accountable not to destroy the planet, but you describe it as kind of a corporate cop-out. Like rather than take accountability, they were blaming yeah. Consumer. It's actually a corporate campaign. Keep America Beautiful was backed by big corporations. Yeah. So this this is sort of the meat of my current thinking. And and there's actually new information on this that came out this week from Harvard. I'm going to I'm going to tell you about that. But but in a nutshell, corporate sustainability and American environmentalism in the last 30 to 40 years has been based on the thesis that that this is Partly our fault because we used fossil fuels, we use plastic, and therefore we need to be part of the solution. Now, if you go back into environmental history, it's there, there are roots of this thinking all the way back to Thoreau. Um, there was a biography written about Thoreau and Emerson's relationship recently, and the interviewer said, Well, what would Thoreau, what would Thoreau have done about climate change? And the the author said, well, he would have gone back to his house and he would have made sure that his bean garden was totally dialed. And the point is, Thoreau didn't like government. He didn't like taxation. And he was about the individual. And so there's this ethos in America that, that we're going to fix the problem ourselves and that we're part of the problem. Now, in the corporate world and in America, this has all been, oh, it, it's the way we think about environmentalism, which is, hey, I can't really criticize um, the fossil fuel industry for creating climate change because I drive an SUV. And I'm going to lay out why, why actually that's not the case. But in, in summary, the, the consumer didn't say, hey, I need, to, to, I need mobility. I need transportation. Just Provide that transportation and mobility in a way that destroys civilization. Will you do that for me? Same thing. I want a hot shower. I want cold beer. Make sure you <laughs> provide that in the most destructive humanly way possible. Similarly, when you deliver my milk, don't put it in a glass jug that gets reused. Do it in a way that will destroy the global oceans. Okay, so the point is citizens didn't say that. What happened was the fossil fuel industry, which is also the plastics industry, in the 60s started making plastic. And it, it was a miracle thing. And they, they realized it was everywhere. And, you know, in the 60s, late 60s in America, we were a wasteland. Rivers were on fire. Fields were just 
dumping grounds. And they said, look, this is our problem, but very rapidly, we got to make it your problem. So that was the root of the crying Indian ad. Um, it was a, a, a group of trade. It was a trade group that came together and said, let's make individuals think this is their problem. Now, to understand how powerful this was, think about when you're out on the street and you pick up a piece of litter. You feel great. You feel righteous. And you feel that other people are bad. So the, the mission there was put, put the guilt of the plastics industry onto the individual so that it wouldn't come back, blow back on the industry in the form of regulation. Now, on that specific point, this continues to this day. You all have read the recent research that says of all the plastic ever recycled in the history of recycling, about 10% has ever been recycled. So it's a scam. It doesn't, recycling as a whole isn't really working. But but if you talk to Coca-Cola or Pepsi or any of the major companies, they'll say, look, don't, don't get rid of bottled water. We'll improve recycling. And those companies have all widely opposed bottle bills. So on one hand, they say improve recycling. But the one legislation that would do it, bottle bills, they've widely opposed throughout the country. So um, it's entirely disingenuous. Think about the little logo that's on all the all the plastic, the recycle logo. They lobbied to put that logo on there so that yeah. it would seem that you could recycle. And it goes on every right. type of plastic, even three and six and seven that are completely not recyclable. And they did that on purpose, right? Right. So, so the next shoe to drop was that the fossil fuel industry said, we got to do the same thing. And famously in 2004, BP created the carbon footprint calculator um, so that individuals could show how they were doing better reducing their, their emissions, despite the fact that they were victims of a society that had been created by fossil fuel industry. The term is capture of government. That means that they had the, the money in politics and the influence on elected officials to own government. So we created this world where there are billions of dollars annually subsidizing fossil fuels, where we said we're going to have highways instead of rail. We're going to have internal combustion vehicles instead of electric. There were all these hidden incentives. It's going to be really cheap to drill for gas on your public lands and all those things. So, so now, even in my career, and, and this took forever to figure out. You know, I used to have a pickup truck. I love pickup trucks, but I got rid of it because I'm the Enviro guy. I can't be doing that. But again, it's not my fault. And we are in a system that was not created by us and that we didn't ask for. Now, what just dropped in the last week is some, some new research from Harvard. And this is important because what I what I was saying about plastics and then the fossil fuel industry, it it sounds borderline paranoid, right? It sounds like that there is a case to be made that the fossil fuel industry found a cheap way to provide energy to society. Coal. It was just a rock that happened to burn. They dug it up out of the ground. Like burning dirt is the cheapest way to make power. And the truth is, coal and oil and gas, these are not, these were not bad for society. 
This is what helped America um, become a leading nation, helped us win World War One and Two, um, lifted millions of people out of poverty. There's nothing wrong with the fossil fuel industry or the people in it, ex- except for a few of them that I'll talk about, other than there is a carbon problem that we now understand. So in the 50s and 60s, ExxonMobil was starting to understand that there was a carbon problem. And uh, what, what two researchers at Harvard have just dug up is that ExxonMobil in particular, the, the researchers are Naomi Oreskes and Jeffrey Supran. ExxonMobil was actively pushing this narrative that you are complicit in the problem and therefore you can't complain. And, and there, there's been an LA Times article and a few other articles in the last week talking about this. So they have the evidence that says, yeah, Exxon did this by design. And it makes sense, right? If, if you're the tobacco industry and it's clear that tobacco causes cancer, what you want to do is inject enough doubt into the public mind so that you can monetize tobacco for another decade or two. Same thing that the, is what, that's the same thing the fossil fuel industry has done, which is we have to monetize the limited reserves in the ground. And the more doubt that's in the public mind and the more they take this problem on themselves, the more we can monetize this resource before it's gone. So that leads us to the present day where, um, you know, we still haven't successfully uh, figured out the difference between taking care of our own house and doing the type of um, trilogy of political activism that you described, John. Yeah, and that's really why companies need to step up and get into the political arena because big oil has been there for decades, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the interesting challenges. So, so the NGO community and corporate America said, OK, we got to step up. We're going to create something that we call science-based targets. And what science-based targets are is the notion that, that each business has a portion of the global emissions that they ought to reduce, that they are responsible for. And this was seen, and, and major, major nonprofits are making this their focus. This is seen as now we're applying science to to this problem. But in reality, all it's doing is kind of putting a scientific stamp of approval on the fact that you're taking the blame for the problem. Because in reality, if if global emissions don't drop 100 percent by 2050 or 2060, we're going to warm more than three degrees Celsius by end of century. So what's your piece of the fix? Well, your piece of the fix is making sure that everyone is part of the fix. It's not that you cut your own emissions 50% yeah. or even 100%. It makes no sense. So so this we're, we're in this situation where even the kind of legitimate, serious approaches to carbon reduction mean corporations taking on the burden of guilt um, for society. I get where you're coming from because I can't tell you how many times I've opened packaging of something that I purchased and I'm looking at it saying, "Hmm, can't recycle this plastic. I'm just going to put it in my garbage. And I do it and I'm shaking my head thinking, should I have not bought this? Like, 
but what were my options? What choice as a consumer, you know, we just don't have choices. And, you know, we had Chad Nelson on our podcast quite a while ago, and he's the CEO of Surfrider. And a lot of people think that Surfrider just goes around and conducts beach cleanups, which goes back to kind of what you were saying. Um, you go and you can pick up the litter and feel good about yourself and judge everybody. But the problem, you haven't done anything to fix the problem. I mean, Surfrider actually does instigate a lot of federal regulation that's valuable in preserving uh, the coastline. So they're doing, they're doing the right thing. They're activating community through beach cleanup. That's what's raising awareness. That's what's getting people involved, right? And then they're using that momentum. They're using that critical mass to help them get behind regulation, which I think is a, a smart way of doing things. But it's frustrating as a consumer who wants to do the right thing. And you're saying, go home and turn your thermostat down. Go ahead. It's not going to do a damn bit of difference. Well, it's it's given us something to do. So we don't focus on what we really can do to move the needle. Well, I think in my, my message gets interpreted wrong. I'm not saying, eh, don't bother with all that stuff. Look, there are things we do as parents and citizens and human beings that are about living a good life, right? We shouldn't, we shouldn't be wasteful. Um, we should treat our neighbors well. We should not waste food. We should be philanthropic. So that's how you live your life. It's not how you solve climate change, right? Turning your thermostat down is, is being a, a frugal, good person. And so use protecting resources so they're resources for others. If you'd like to talk about solving climate change, we can do that, right? And that's a different story. So an individual working on climate change looks like a citizen activist, which, which it's funny that I even have to add activist yeah. in there. But American citizens were activists before we basically gave up. I mean, my theory of what happened in the, after World War II is we woke up into a society where we had security, a great legal system, great roads, great transportation. We had vaccines, we had great health care, and we thought, this is how it is. I don't have to do anything to keep it going. I don't have to pay taxes, so let's cut taxes. I don't have to be educated, so let's cut education funding. Um, we really don't, we don't have to do anything. This is what the world is like. Well, as it turns out, you have to cultivate the garden of democracy. You have to continue to pay taxes. You have to be vigilant about education. You can't, you can't assume that any old person's going to be able to govern just as well as anyone else. Um, and, and we reached this point where we basically failed to do what Ben Franklin said um, outside the Constitutional Convention, which is, I've given you a republic. Now you have to keep it. And so a citizen who wants to be a climate who wants to work on climate needs to engage. Yes, you have to vote. And that sounds petty, but most Americans don't vote. Um, and you have to be involved in civil discourse locally, regionally, and federally. And that doesn't mean signing on to um, uh, online petitions. It means actually writing your elected officials, actually calling them, showing up when they come to town, Get involved, involved locally on key issues like building codes and urban planning. 
and not thinking about the world in terms of how it affects yourself. I mean, that's fundamentally the problem in America today, which is decision making is how is this going to affect me? And the United States didn't get great through that kind of thinking. We got great through, frankly, collectivism. So if I think about and let me give you an example that's dominant in the United States now. My neighbor is going to put in an accessory dwelling unit, a mother-in-law unit above the garage. So what happened? Now, why, why would they do that? Well, my neighbor is a ski patroller and his wife is a teacher. And it's really hard to live here as it is. It's expensive to live everywhere, wherever you are. So if you put in a mother-in-law unit, you can make a little income. So you can live there. So we have teachers and we have ski patrollers who can live in our community. But what it also does is it provides affordable housing for another person like that because it's a small unit in a dense neighborhood. So, and what it does is it prevents traffic and therefore pollution because you have people in the neighborhood near where they work without as long a commute. So it's all good. This is urban density, urban planning. It makes sense. Well, what happens when your neighbor proposes this? All of the neighbors oppose it because it'll create traffic. I don't want that construction in my yard. Um, I don't want an extra car there going back and forth. And, and universally, this is called not in my backyardism, nimbyism. That's what's driving us. Similarly on tax policy. I don't have kids. We hear this all the time. I don't have kids in school. I'm not going to vote to raise the taxes. That's madness, right? Like a good education system, those are the people who are going to be taking care of you when you get older. Those are your property values if you have good schools. Um, that's how a society thrives. But we're not making these decisions um, with any sort of sense of commonality and concern for fellow human beings, which is just like, it's not that complicated. It's the root of religion, right? The golden rule, which is consistent among all global religions, treat your neighbor as they would like to be treated. Um, we're not doing that anymore. So everything comes together um, in this, this kind of situation we're in, where we're failing to act as citizens. And we're also taking on the blame of a systemic problem that can only be fixed by acting as citizens. Probably your most recent article in Harvard Business Review, you talk about the climate equity connection and businesses, what it might take for businesses to, to really get on board. And what you talk about uh, that the climate is a stakeholder. Yeah. Yeah. So. So this was a funny story. I got invited to speak at the business school or actually the geography school at Syracuse University. And I get up there and I I get greeted my, by my professor who, who's hosting me. And he says, hey, uh, just so you know, I know you're giving a talk tonight. There will be no graduate students there. And I said, why? That, that's too bad. And he says, basically, they don't, they're not buying what you're selling. They don't think capitalism is a fix for climate change, and they don't think corporations have a solution. So I was I was hurt, right? I want people to hear my message, I, and I'm I'm a radical guy. I'm not a it, it, anyway. He says, and by the way, most of these guys are Marxists. And I was like, whoa. 
In the process of having that conversation, he handed me a paper by a guy named Matt Huber, who's a professor there. Um, and it's called Ecological Politics for the Working Class. And, and in a nutshell, the thesis is that if you think about the historical environmental movement, it's been teeny. And the reason it's been teeny and relatively ineffective is that it doesn't appeal to the broad swath of Americans, right? Save the whales. Well, if you say save the whales to someone who can't find health insurance, who can't pay for their kid's college, who's barely making enough food uh, money to, to buy food and pay the rent, they're not going to care about the environment. And so what, what Huber argues is that the only way to move the needle in government is to combine the climate and environmental movement with the equity movement. And at that point, you have enough uh, critical mass to drive change. And the, and the key point is that the equity movement and the climate movement are effectively the same thing. Um, and, and you can think about that however you want, but, but climate is going to affect the poorest people most. Think of New Orleans. Think of what happens if you don't have any money and your house gets blown over in a hurricane or a flood or a fire. Um, think about the justice issues where just very dirty coal plants were sited in poor neighborhoods. Yeah, those fence-line communities, right, with oil refineries. In yeah. There. And also, you know, the, the vibrant democracy, right, the ability to vote and have your voice heard is part of uh, the equity movement. But the reality is if everyone voted, we'd have solved climate too, right? So these, these issues are, are perfectly intermeshed um, and they're of significant mass that this matters. Now, you were asking about the, the notion of climate uh, as a stakeholder uh, in the business world. And, you know, more and more business is going to have to grapple with, with what the future looks like and how that affects um, supply chains and uh, workforce and so forth. John, I don't know if this happened while you and I were working together, but um, one year we were opening a hotel and it was the year that Sandy hit. And so we're opening a hotel in September and we were waiting for a bunch of furniture to come in. And we got a call that they didn't even know where the furniture was because the hurricane had disrupted the entire supply chain. And so we, we were facing, you know, millions of dollars in lost revenue because of the hurricane that hit the East Coast and disrupted supply chain. So intuitively, climate is a, is a stakeholder, is, a, is a, a, a growing issue to be addressed. But generally speaking, corporations have, have kind of put it aside as too big and too long term for them to grapple with. Yeah, you talk somewhere about tech firms, too. And I over here in California, I'm part of a climate action group, the business engagement team. And we quickly went to we need to get these big firms to to get behind policy like Biden's infrastructure plan, aggressive climate policy. But it's so hard to get them to even put a few lobbying dollars towards climate in any way. Yeah, there's a great new group uh, founded by a friend of mine named Bill Weil. Yeah, Climate Voice. I love that guy. Yeah. Climate Voice. 
and and they're trying to. It may be Bill Wheel. Uh, I'll put it's it's Bill Wheel. Yeah. So um, they're trying to get employees to pressure big tech firms to do more in climate. So the big Apple and Google are spending about four percent of lobbying dollars on climate. So this is, you know, these are organizations that say they care that are doing lots of things at the operational level with renewable energy and so forth. And then they get to Washington where it really matters behind closed doors with your big time K street lobbyists. And they're not talking about climate. And, and so why is that? Well, one is that they, they have a lot of other issues they got to deal with. And if you alienate say a Republican by coming after them hot on climate and then you need something else, you're going to be in trouble. So, so that, that's the explanation, but it's totally disingenuous and, and is wrong. In our, in our small industry, we have a trade group in Colorado called Colorado Ski Country. And there is now a climate bill in the state that would put Colorado on par with California and New York as leading states on climate. The trade group, which has said, yes, this is an issue, by the way, it's polled board members and the board says climate is a major important issue. They are taking no position on this bill. And the reason is that the governor was really friendly to the industry and helped the industry out during COVID. So they don't want to poke him in the eye by going against him on this climate bill because he believes it's too, too, too regulatory. Mm. So it's this, yeah, yeah. this crazy situation where the the ski industry that ought to care and says it cares and whose constituents care don't support the bill that would do something. God, it's freaking politics, man. It's always comes down to politics. What do you, I'm curious what you think about, um, you know, the latest bit of news on Bitcoin with, um, you know, Tesla not taking Bitcoin as payment because we've realized now that Bitcoin consumes this, tremendous amount of, of energy. It's not green. Yeah. Well, I mean, that is that is fascinating and complicated. It's it's new, right? So so Bitcoin has the, the potential to to actually support a clean energy grid, not just suck up energy. And and what, what I mean by that is mining Bitcoin mm-hmm. can happen anytime. It doesn't have to happen at 7 a.m. when you're making your coffee. So you could structure these Bitcoin mining operations to operate, say, at between 1 a.m. and 4 a.m. in Texas uh, when the grid is is got tons of surplus power um, from wind and other renewables. So yeah. there's a way to do this. Um, and so the conversation has been it uses a ton of energy. It's true. It uses a ton of energy. But but. Really, a lot of the, the, the fix of, around climate is, is how you use technology and information to structure when energy is used or not. Um, so it's a problem. I think it's, it's fixable. Um, and and if, if you do what I'm describing, it actually could enable a, a cleaner grid by providing revenue for utilities, clean power resources, um, at times when there's surplus energy on the grid. And you, you had, um, you know, actually one of the first episodes we ever did, we really talked about how it's a design problem and you, you have an interesting 
analogy or metaphor. I always mix up which is which. But anyway, you talk about if you put the cream in your Starbucks cup first and then you add your coffee, you don't need a stir stick. Right. That's right. what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. That that's that's just like that's a very light example of intelligence and design solving a problem. Um, now, the, I, I do have a kind of a sense, a, a, a tragic sense that we finally figured out all the technology we need to solve climate change, and it's a little bit late. Um, you know, as an example, we now have the ability to, to operate a utility grid in a way that just through information that uses enormously less power without affecting our lives at all. And it's just using communication and technology and information. So an example would be a modern smart house. Um, the way it would work is at, at 7 a.m. when the utility needs more power, they would turn off your refrigerator for 20 minutes. Well, you'd never notice because refrigerators have thermal mass and nothing changes, but that's a big load in your house. And then you'd have your F-150 plugged into the house and also at peak times, the utility would be able to draw power from the car um, instead of having to fire up a diesel generator to make that extra power they need during the peak time. And then at two in the morning, when they have all this extra wind power on the grid, they'd charge your F-150, right? And this requires this interplay. So what, it's fascinating. We're there, right? We just have to dis- deploy this technology. Problem is, we're so far behind the curve uh, on climate that it has to happen immediately and it, it's not gonna. Well, John, John knows I often go down the dark rabbit hole, <laughs> <laughs> the negative side, and yeah. it takes a bit to come back. And, and you've said that stopping climate change is hopeless, uh, but then you say, let's do it anyways. Is that how you get yourself out of bed in the morning? Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of people say, wow, we're not gonna do this it's going to warm three degrees or so. This is impossible. And I don't see that as, as a problematic point because human beings take on impossible battles all the time. We, we are the masters of the losing fight. Um, mortality uh, is the first one. But uh, if you think about throughout history, we've always, you know, all the things that mattered have taken multi-generations to solve. Um, anything meaningful is, is difficult to solve. Um, and our stories, the stories we care about and tell each other and repeat are all about impossible fights that you end up losing in the end anyway. Think about, oh, the Bible. Uh, you know, in, in the Bible, uh, in the Christian Bible, you lose because evil is persistent, right? Um, even after you win, there's still evil in the world. The devil still exists. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien was a big, was a, a devout Christian, and he said, "Look, in the Lord of the Rings, evil doesn't go away. You come back to the Shire after destroying the Ring, and the Shire was destroyed. Um, there's this persistent challenge in Harry Potter. You know, Voldemort. Voldemort's still around. So the point is, this is what it means to be human. You take on these long-term, very difficult battles. You fight them as a practice." not as a, I'm going to win this thing. And that's what we do. And on climate, it's, it's an incredibly meaningful fight 
Um, the stakes are enormous. The little wins are are really fun. You know, I, I John, my whole book is is stories about failures, but also it's about successes that keep you going. So I, I don't find the impossibility or the difficulty to be a contradiction. I'd love to hear more about the collaboration that you did with a coal company and a utility company. It just seems like such an oddball team up to get to some negative energy. What, let's see, what was it? Um, yeah. To generate carbon negative energy. Yeah. So one of our strategies is, look, we're going to push on power, meaning we're going to try to change utilities and government and policy using Aspen's name and influence and the power of our guests and our media reach. But at the same time, we're going to do stuff on the ground. And when we do that stuff, it should be a model for the world and it should be large scale. So one project we did was to capture methane that leaks out of a coal mine about an hour from here and turn it into electricity. And the thing about methane is it's a super greenhouse gas. It's about 80, 84 times more potent than CO2. So if humans are going to solve the climate problem, we need to deal with methane. And uh, if you burn it and turn it into electricity, one, you, you convert that methane into CO2. So you've gone from a potency of 84 to one. And second, uh, you're now putting clean energy or, or energy on the grid that can displace dirtier energy. So when you destroy methane, you're you're basically creating a, a carbon offset, uh, and then you're getting electricity. What's interesting about this project is it's huge. So it's three megawatts of baseload power, uh, which is what our our resort uses. We have four mountains, eighteen restaurants, three hotels. Um, so it. it it doesn't power our resort because it goes into the grid, but it's the equivalent amount of power. And it's a partnership with Bill Koch, uh, who's part of the, the Koch family, K-O-C-H, and, and have basically been climate deniers and oppose uh, regulation. And the reason that he supported it is that we were using a resource that would have been wasted. And so it, it, it's just a fascinating project. The way it works is the electricity, methane comes out of the ground, it goes into three giant truck engines that make electricity. Um, and, and this is something that's prevalent in China and Germany and Europe and France, but it's not widespread in the U.S. So the U.S. needs some level of incentive or policy to make this more prevalent because right now methane is just pouring out of the ground. What a, yeah, what a great model. Yeah, that's amazing. And we, we spoke with somebody... Yeah, we spoke with somebody earlier too who is um, making a, a, a methane. She's uh, she's making a biodegradable polymer that consumes methane in the manufacturing process. Yeah, which is you know kind of a nice what does she call that gift uh -huh. purchase? You know that you're burning some methane. But um, and we we have to let you go in a little bit. Um, we're coming to the tail end here, and I know that there's still a lot we want to talk with you about, but. You know, what's your North Star right now? What are you, you know, where, where are you really focused in, in your attention? You know, I, I think we're at a we're at a really exciting time where we have to we have to do two things. We have to deploy the technology we have. And, and Aspen's role is to to deploy that in visible ways that other people can follow. And then we have to use power to drive 
and support the big scale change that's happening. So um, we are like today, as an example, we're advocating for a, a bill at the state level that would set hard caps on CO2 emissions in the state. And we're using the outdoor industry to say, look, we are we're a huge business in Colorado. We're getting we're trying to get the governor not to veto this. We're supporting that simultaneously. Yeah. Um, 25% of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions come from public lands. So drilling, mining, and then emitting uh, the carbon from those resources. And by, wow, yeah. that's and so Biden, through the Department of Interior, has put a pause on, the, on public lands drilling. And the reason he did beyond CO2 emissions is that it's not fair. Uh, these leases are typically given away. Now, these are resources the coal, the oil, the gas, it's owned by American citizens. So the cost of that lease should include the value of the resource as well as the CO2 impact, and it doesn't. So Biden's looking at that again. Well, of course, trade groups in Wyoming sued, and uh, we came in in defense of Biden in Wyoming saying, look, we're the ski industry, and we, we believe this makes sense. So that's another example of the kind of power wielding I'm describing. Um, and then on the ground, we can do stuff uh, that can demonstrate the fix. So an example would be if, if you build a new hotel, as we're going to be doing in Mammoth, California, um, and you heat it with natural gas, which is how we heat buildings all over, that will now emit CO2 for the life of the building, call it 50 years. If you make it heated by electricity using heat pump technology, the, the building will get greener and greener every year as the grid becomes more renewable. In California, it's 60% renewable and headed toward 100%. So electrification of buildings is critical. What we're trying to do is build a hotel that's entirely electric and geothermal because it's mammoth. You're on top of a volcano, basically. Um, and then make that a demonstration project for others in the hotel industry, but the guests too will learn about it. So, so those are the kinds of things we like to do: model for the rest of the world and wield power as a business to improve the world. Yeah, very cool. And what do you tell all those Syracuse grad students that decided to boycott you? Oh, well, I never got to talk to them. Um, what what I yeah. tell them, it like they're right. They're right. Um, but, but I think that the, the piece, I wish they would have listened to me because I, I think I'm on the same page. Yeah. 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 Awesome. That's wow. amazing. Oh, it's such a great example. I, I'm over here with a couple of my groups working on trying to support some building decarbonization legislation here too. And I, I definitely believe wholeheartedly that that's the way to go. I'm trying to get my association behind it and any interior design practice that will join to support these bills. And it is the way to go. And our podcast is all about finding people that set examples and, and put forth incredible models. And I think that hotel sounds amazing in Mammoth. It's not built yet. Uh, I'll let you know if we get it. Let us know. Let us know so we can come check yeah. it out. But, but I, I think what's what's great is Aspen Skin Company, you know, your strategy of of wielding power, um, of, of showing what the fix looks like on the ground, um, you know, deploying technology, 
visibly so people can see it. That's brilliant, but I think it, it applies anywhere. And I think that's what, you know, that's what we try to do is take something like this and say, there's no reason at all why you can't do that. It doesn't have to be Aspen Skiing Company doing that. Right. Yeah. And the latest thing we've been thinking about is we used to build these efficient buildings and we'd say they look just like every other building. Um, So it's no different. But now we're saying it should look different. You know, if you've got a because you're trying to and this is true of interior design. You're trying to educate and convert people to be part of the climate movement. So you can't just put the Tesla Powerwall in your building. You should have it visible with a sign on it so people can say, oh, that's cool. I want to do that. Great point. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great Uh. point. Yes, yeah, so many things. I wanted to get to the concept of the epic fail, and I wanted to talk about so much more. We'll have to have you back on. Yeah. Yeah, failure. Failure is one of my specialties, so we can talk about that next time. But uh, thank you. Thank you all for for listening. Yeah, um, thank you for sharing uh, so much of what you know. We appreciate it, and uh, we're happy that we've got you out there doing what you're doing. So. All right. Take care. Bye, Auden. Uh, John. Okay. I should never, ever question you again. Auden was amazing. <laughs> I hope you all enjoyed it as much as we did. Yes. He was fun. He has got some tremendous insight. I love his attitude on things, and hopefully it's going to rub off on some people. But we got a big one coming up. Yeah. Well, an interesting one, A little something a little different. John and I did a panel a little while back with mortar and a few others around material specification. And we're going to basically put that recording on our play that recording on our episode. Say it again. We're basically going to play that recording on our episode or that recording will be, ah, you do it. (laughs) (laughs) What are we going to do? Oh my God. Yes. So we just did this panel discussion with mortar, our good friends, a really cool online organization that, that really connects our industry very nicely. But we did a panel with Jane Abernethy of human scale and with Annie Bevan of mindful materials to talk a lot about material transparency. And we thought the panel was interesting enough that we wanted to take that recording and turn it into a podcast. So that's going to be the next episode. Thanks for saying what I couldn't say, John. Words <laughs> right. out of your mouth, like meatloaf. All right, see you all next time. Yes, thanks for tuning in. Keep it playing.